welcome everybody to the Haunted Hacker podcast. I think this is episode like 35 now. I kind of lost track. Um, so I'll go through the general housekeeping and, and stuff like that. Although we don't have to have it because today's a kind of an intimate uh, podcast for special reasons. Um, so we won't be uh, having to lock down the chat. So you guys can put uh, questions in the chat for uh, our guest. And uh, let's go over some news really quick. So um, I finally got a state ID. That was a big, a big win for me. Um, spent, see, two years, three years without ID, without an identity. Um, finally got one back. Uh, and also, so I started my, my, my new job this week and uh, it was really cool. Um, got a lot of really good people working for me. Uh, really great company. Um, and also in the news, like, we saw some really cool stuff uh, the other day, um, heard about it. There was a company that got uh, hit with a ransomware and the ransomware attackers actually went into the sand, deleted all of the, the uh, snapshots, um, encrypted the sand, then encrypted all the VMs. Um, and this was, you know, probably, I think the second time they've been hit. Um, so now we've crossed the threshold where backups are no longer um, the solution. Uh, so I'm trying to figure out what's going to happen next. Uh, also, Casilla, um, the uh, application, the platform that got um, smashed, uh, found out about it right before it hit. Um, we had picked up word in one of the uh, forums um, that a zero day was going to drop on that platform. And literally before I could get news out, um, they had fired it up and really like started destroying stuff. Uh, made my life a little miserable for a bit. Um, luckily though, it didn't trickle over to the US, not that I know of so far. Uh, and the platform that, that they attacked is kind of a rare platform over here. Um, a lot of people have moved off of it. So, you know, I, I don't think it's probably the end of it probably hear more about it um, and probably be switching agents. Uh, I look for uh, the next attack to be something like an EDR agent attack, uh, maybe something like CrowdStrike or uh, FireEye, BlackEye, FireEye. I think that's what it's called. Um, yeah, so probably, uh, probably something like that pretty soon. Um, I'm starting to see a lot of agent driven attacks and it makes sense because, you know, it's like a river. Why would you go upstream, just follow the river and, and wherever it goes, just infect everything. Um, so we have a new co-host tonight and I'm really happy about this. Um, she does the cyber house party, which by the way, I was nominated for and didn't win. Um, I blame Blame Amy for that. AU Awards, not Cyber House Party. AU Awards. AU Awards, yeah, yeah. Same, well, same thing. It's, it's all the same people, right? So. <laughs> yeah, kind of. So we have Amy tonight. Um, she's going to be one of our, our new co-hosts. And uh, really looking forward to that. Add a little bit of pizzazz to the uh, podcast. Um, and I'll let our guest introduce himself and give us a little bit of background about himself. And uh, then we'll kick it off. Uh, <clears throat> a little background about me. Um, I'm Chris, Christoph Lalonde, Chris Lalonde. I've been doing the uh, Breaking Into Cybersecurity podcast for the past uh, three years. And uh, it's been going really well. And decided that I was going to 
take it, summarize it, and put it into a book format. Um, worked along with my co-host, who is a recruiter, and Gary Hayslip, who's a CISO, to provide three different perspectives, that of senior leadership, that of a recruiter, and that of a practitioner. So we uh, released this book um, just this week. So we're here to talk about it and answer any career-related questions. That's awesome. Um, you know, to take that knowledge and put it into a book uh, is pretty amazing. Um, a lot of people have, you know, I've, I've thought about doing a book, but I'm so intimidated by it. So kudos for, for taking that on and actually, you know, cranking it out. Uh, that's a huge accomplishment, I think. Um, so you've been around the, the Haunted Hacker for a while um, over in the uh, Discord and, and kind of hanging out. Um, and uh, I was really looking forward to, to having you on the show. Uh, so why don't you tell us about about the book and you know everything that, that went into it and you know some of the theories behind it and uh, we'll talk about that and open up some questions. Yeah, so um, it started. I, I had an idea from the podcast, like um, what were the common themes that have emerged from interviewing people um, over the past five years, as well as my own uh, so the past three years and my own experience. Um, and then I, I tried to create a framework of sorts for it. Um, how could I break this down? Um, first of all, like most of the times you get, you, the first question you get is, I wanna break into cybersecurity. And I asked them, okay, where? And that that's the first thing that thumbs people. So, um, finding out your passion, obviously, is kind of the first, the first subject in the book and kind of talks about there. And then it kind of goes through the evolution from like uh, doing a self-assessment of where you are now, um, how to research roles, how to look at roles, um, and then do another assessment of how you can get to where you want to go, um, ways to network um, within the community reach out to hiring managers, um, ways to tweak your resume, um, ways, ways to translate what you've done into value propositions so that when you do have those interviews and you do talk to those hiring managers, it's more than just, oh, I ran the fan, okay? Well, what else did you do? How did you save them money? How did you drive value? How did you make them more secure? maybe you made a ransom more resilient. Um, so find, find ways to, to uh, show the value that you bring to the organization uh, through that. Um, and then it all wraps up like at the end, hey, now you got in, you, you have to keep going. It doesn't just stop there. It's a continuous evolution. Um, I, I kind of broke it down into that framework and I I reached out to um, Renee, who's my co-host, and asked her if she was interested in doing it. And she, she was, but she was also so busy as a recruiter. Um, in this day and age, like recruiters are always so busy. Um, so while I had her interest, I, I, I figured I wanted to get someone that was also very experienced in the industry. And I knew uh, Gary Hayslip from uh, his book, The CISO Desktop Guides. So I thought that would be really interesting to bring um, a senior leadership perspective um, into it. So he also had the connection from um, publishing uh, those previous books that he could make it easy. 
Um, I've looked into the self-publishing route and it seems really hard. Um, I later figured out it's actually that it's not that hard and we can we can talk about that Mike if you want but um, going into it with um, a known publisher did make it easy because you had um, the resources that come along with that an editor, um, someone that can help with graphics, someone that can help with um, back end research and um, helping you craft your message because saying me putting my thoughts on a page might come across good to me, but someone else reading it might go, oh, yeah, that doesn't make sense. So that back and forth process actually took close to a year um, in like edits. Um, and it, it was a collaborative process because each of the each of the co-authors uh, reviewed each other's sections of the book. Uh, so we all wrote the same sections from our different perspectives and we each um, reviewed and, and did suggestions on um, more resources that they could add, or um, maybe if someone didn't finish a, a statement or a thought, um, hint them on to, to finish that off. And um, so it, it was a really good collaborative process. And um, I was just happy <laughs> that it was done after a, a year of editing. Um, but yeah. That's, that's really cool. Um... So I tried to go down a route of doing some some independent publishing. Uh, I got onto Amazon and uh, was trying to use their I think it's called KDR or something like that um, mm -hmm. to publish publish a book um, in our magazine. We've got a couple of magazines we have, uh, and I ran into a huge roadblock. And the community there was not very um, helpful. Uh, it was more of you know, a shaming type situation where, oh, you don't know what you're doing. Well, of course not. That's why I'm here. Uh, so that, yeah. that, that's intimidating. Um, so when you, when you talk about people coming into breaking into cybersecurity, what, what do you find that, that most of the people are aimed towards? Um, from, from my point of view and from my experience, a lot of people, they're, they're not really sure about what's inside of cybersecurity. It's like a walnut that they can't see inside until they break it open. Um, and so I, I try to find yeah, out, I'm, um, go ahead. I was going to say like, I'm mentoring a load of people at the moment. And I said to them, like the first session I had with them, if you all tell me you want to be pen testers, like go and get a different mentor because that's not the only job that's in cyber. There's like so many other things you could do. Um, and I think that like looking from the outside in, a lot of people think that there's like pen testers or CISOs and that's the only two roles. I don't know if that's what like everyone else seems to, seems to find. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, uh, go ahead, Christoph. Go ahead, Mike. Um, so, uh, yeah, oftentimes a, a lot of folks, um, they want to come in on the red teaming side, um, but they don't really understand that um, the, the skill set, um, the experience needed to really come in on that side. Um, and they think that they could go to a boot camp and just do it. Um, so mo most of the times it's, it's usually a, um, awakening for them that it's not that easy, but then you can have a conversation about, uh, transferable skills, like, um, ask them about what, what they've done, what they like doing, and then make suggestions. Um, have you looked at this type of role or this type of role? And, um, in the U S the, um, NIST created a nice framework that kind of breaks down 
around some of the different types of roles into skills, competencies, and knowledge areas. So lately I've been pointing people to that um, so that they can research based on the different types of roles, what sort of skills and competencies and knowledge they should have um, to be successful in one of those types one of those roles. Yeah, it seems like a lot of people when yes, they go look for a link for that. When they think about um, cybersecurity, you're right. They, they think about red teaming because their example of uh, cybersecurity is what they see on TV, uh, Mr. Robot, stuff like that. And immediately they think, oh, well, that sounds like a really cool job to have. And then when they get in and they realize the work that goes into it, I think a lot of people change their mind. Um, so that's one of the things that, that I try to look for when I'm mentoring people or trying to help people get into cybersecurity is the psychology, right? I think the psychology is important um, because not everybody's crafted to be a blue teamer or a red teamer. Um, it takes all types. Um, we had a, a guy on the show last weekend uh, that was talking about, you know, the fact that there's all kinds of things in cybersecurity that people can do. And it doesn't necessarily have to do with ones and zeros. It could be marketing. It could be sales. Um, there's a lot of things people can do and mentoring too in sales. Um, usually, yeah, usually when Amy gets mentees, uh, I get a phone call and, and get to talk to groups of people and, and yeah, it's a lot of fun. Um, so yeah, yeah I mean, on a, on the podcast, we've had people that come from physical therapy, um, CPAs, uh, the military, um, li uh, librarian, um, all, all sorts of different backgrounds. So um, no matter where you're from, you're welcome. And I think that's one of the things that I, I try to uh, share in the show is that we need that diverse group of individuals mm -hmm. so that we can look at the problem in a diverse way and come up with new and creative solutions. Because if you look at it the same way all the time, you'll get the same results all the time. Yeah, yeah one of the girls that I mentor, um, she was a teacher and then she's got a job as a security awareness trainer because she knows the skills to be able to teach people stuff. It was just the content she needed to learn. Um, so that, yeah, that, that was quite an interesting switch of career, I guess. Yeah, it's pretty crazy looking at some of the different careers that, that go into it. And I see a lot of people from the military um, actually crossing into cybersecurity or coming from cybersecurity in the military into um, a commercial world. Uh, that didn't used to always be the case. Um, up until about 2003-ish, uh, the Navy didn't even have a cybersecurity rate, um, a warfare rate. Uh, so a lot of that is new, and, and we have a lot of people that are coming straight from the military into cybersecurity, which I think is a really good thing, um, because with that perspective, you see a lot of stuff that, that the commercial world doesn't see, uh, a lot of classified attacks, a lot of operations that, that are really brutal, but I mean, they're, they're really interesting as well. Um, we have Ryan on as well. I think he's hiding from us. Uh, feel free to jump in with questions, Ryan. Um, hey. You have, any, you have any questions, man? No, not yet, man. Not yet. Cool, cool. I'm glad, I'm glad you're awake, by the way. So, yeah, I was going to say, is it not too early in Australia for you to have any questions? <laughs> I would have none at six o'clock in the morning. Yeah, so as far as writing books, let's talk about that for a second. Um, going through a publisher, how did you, how did you, first of all, how did you find a publisher? And second of all, how did you go about it? Because one of the, the things that frustrated me about looking for a publisher was 
looking at how much it costs to even start the book. Um, one of the publishers I spoke to, they wanted something like 10 grand to start. And, uh, you know, I work in cybersecurity. I don't have 10 grand. So <laughs> how did you do that? Uh, well, that, that's where I came in with my network, right? Um, so Gary was part of the um, desktop reference guide, CISO desktop reference guide. So uh, he had the connection um, with the publishing company. They were open to doing a series like that. Um, so it just became, you're hedging the risk on publishing the series, um, but then you, you lose out a little bit in your royalties. But um, it's, if you're writing a book, first and foremost, I'll say it's a labor of love. Um, uh, unless you, you expect to be on the New, York, um, the New York Times bestseller list for years on end, um, it, you're, you're, it's, just, it's just for the pleasure of it, right? right. Um, I've talked to some other uh, authors in, in my network and some of the mistakes uh, they made, for example, when finding um, a publishing company is they helped with the publishing um, and that was it. Uh, they didn't help with the editing. They didn't help with the marketing. So as you go out and you're looking for a publisher, make sure that you're gonna help with all those things, especially the marketing um, when it comes to that, because um, if you're stuck at the end with a book and you're the only one marketing and you're a team of one, uh, that, that's really hard to do. Um, so even though you can rely on your network, if you have a company that can help with that, uh, it's definitely a lot more helpful, like uh, a Wiley or an O'Reilly or something like that. Yeah, like No Starch Press or something like that. Um, we, have an, we have an indie magazine that Ryan put together. Um, and I'll tell you what, like, I really want to get that on shelves. Uh, I went through Amazon trying to publish it there and I got rejected because they don't do indie magazines. Um, something about multiple authors and, you know, publishing rights and just chaos. Uh, so Ryan has it on a website issue, issue.com, um, that, I mean, it's a fantastic magazine. The graphics are amazing. The content is from every, everybody in the group, uh, whether you're a newcomer or experienced like a veteran, it, it, I mean, there's, there's articles for everybody and it gives them a chance to, the idea behind the magazine was give everybody in the group and people that were new into security, um, a chance to get their voice out there and to get known. Um, one of the problems that I see with people getting into cybersecurity is, you know, they're required to have X amount of experience and, and all these certs just to have an entry level position. Um, so with having an, a, an article in a magazine, at least that gives you somewhere to start. Um, so, I mean, the, the, indie, the indie magazine world is a little, a little tight, I think. Um, some of our competitors, if we were to, to publish it, would be something like 2600 or, or Hack and Nine magazine. Uh, and I, I'd like to think that we're, we're up there with them. Um, but the process is, is difficult, right? We have uh, a couple of people that actually one person that does the graphics and the layout, which is Ryan. And then uh, we have multiple people who do articles and advertisements and vendors and stuff like that. Um, so it's, it's a very small operation uh, and Ryan works really hard, um, but it's just a matter of trying to figure out the right path. Uh, and I think being in the industry for, for 20 years, 20 plus years, it's, you know, you see people writing books and I've had friends who wrote books like Jeremiah Grossman and, and Robert Hansen. And it's like, you know, I, I want to do it, 
but it's, it's like, it's one of those mystical things that nobody really knows until you go through the process. Uh, and just listening to, to different people's stories is amazing. Um, so how did you get into cybersecurity be in, to begin with? What was your journey like? Uh, well, I think it started with me as a teenager. I grew up in the Caribbean and um, my parents had a marine hardware business. One of the few that had computers on the island at the time. And I remember as a kid, um, the local computer tech came to, I think, swap out a hard drive or something that went bad. And when I saw her working on it, I'm like, what, what are you doing? Let me see in there. Um, and then I've been in, enamored by it ever since. So uh, by the time I was like 11 or 12, I would spend my entire summer in her cafe, but I wouldn't be surfing. I would be reimaging machines, removing viruses, um, troubleshooting. Um, that's how I started. Um, but then by, by the time I got to college, there have been so many people with like CS degrees that I, I saw in the news that like there's they're they're uh, deflated in value because there's so many people with those types of degrees and I'm like I don't like um, science anyway and back then there was no really computer degrees uh, you had to do math and physics and I don't like that shit um, sorry for my language but no, no. I, I don't like that I was like uh, screw that um, so. I decided that I was going to do a business degree with emphasis on information systems um, and just kind of went there, started out in help desk after a couple of sales roles um, and moved my way up. Um, from, from my first role in help desk, I, I saw people like um, focusing on security and I'm like, ooh, I like that. Like, um, I remember helping someone on in my first week and they had, had uh, a post-it with all their passwords right under their keyboard. And I go, that can't be right. Um, <laughs> but that, that, that's how they did it because they didn't know any better. So it was like, how can we educate the users to, to be more secure? And that, that was just the start of it. Um, but it, it, it was a long process to have that first quote unquote formal security title, it really took almost seven years um, because once you have a certain background, um, people want to hire you for that background. And if you don't tweak your resume or uh, tell security related stories in your interview, you get labeled as a help desk, you get labeled as a blue teamer. Um, so you end up only getting those types of roles. So that, that was one of the things that I learned in my experience is that you have to tweak your resume for the role you want, not, not your past. Because if you focus on all the stuff you did in the past, you'll keep getting the same roles and you struggle to make that full uh, that transition. Um, and the, the, the official transition happened when I just, I said, I was living in South Florida and I said, F it, I'm going to move. Um, and I moved across the country, I moved up to the DC area and took a role consulting, um, a government contractor type gig, uh, supporting the government cloud. So, uh, that's how I got into security. And that's, that's pretty awesome. Yeah. The, uh, <laughs> so speaking about passwords, I heard Amy has her password tattooed on her arm. Just a rumor though. Um, 
So Amy, how did you get in, <laughs> how did you get into cybersecurity, Amy? Um, I was just laughing about this when Christoph was saying how did, when he was like, you should um, go for the like write your CV for the job that you want rather than the, rather than you passed. Um, because I maybe let slip when I was drunk on his podcast that I um, maybe lied on my CV and told everyone that I had definitely sold security stuff before when I hadn't. Um, <laughs> and turned up on my first day in the in the job and was like, fuck, what the hell is like AAD stand for? I don't know what that means. Um, and I had to sit and like Google everything that I'd taught, like vaguely alluded to in the interview. Um, but I picked it up really quickly. And now I do know what I'm talking about, I promise. I'm not faking it anymore. Awesome. <laughs> Maybe a little bit. Awesome. Yeah, I, 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 my, one of my first jobs was a DSL admin back when they first had DSL. I worked for a company that had Co, uh, COVID, COVID DSL. Um, sounds a lot like COVID. Uh, anyways, yeah, I, I worked for them. And, and it was funny because when I, when I support, people will call up and ask the dumbest questions. And I knew that that was not for me because I would have to put them on hold and cuss them the fuck out because I, I couldn't handle it. Like they would call up and I had one guy who said, uh, yeah, I need to get on the internet. I said, okay, well, you know, double click on my computer. And I heard a tapping noise and I'm like, what the hell is that noise? That doesn't sound like a mouse. And come to find out he had the mouse on the screen, tapping on the screen. I just, at that point, I was like, you know, fuck this. I can't do it. Um, so I went from that to uh, some other things and, and kind of drifted into um, cybersecurity kind of through the back door, I guess, or made some back doors. I don't know. Um, but yeah, that, that's how I ended up in it. I know Ryan has an interesting story as well. Um, Ryan, what, how did you get into cybersecurity? Uh, I just watched Hackers and wanted to hack the Gibson. That was it. Yeah. Um, now I've been in the music industry for 20 years and um, because of COVID, that just kind of ended. And it's true, I actually was watching Hackers and decided, yep, I can do that. Let's go. That is the, literally the story that I've heard from so many people. So when I do my mentor sessions, I bring a new person in every week to talk to the group. And like five people that I've brought in have been like, yeah, I watched Hackers and I thought that was really fucking cool. So I was going to go do that as a job. Like, I've never seen... Maybe I should watch this film. You have not watched Hackers and you're in cybersecurity. Girl. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's you should pr probably watch that. Okay. I'll check it out. Yeah. So um, a lot of... Uh, it seems like a lot of kids are trying to get into cybersecurity as well. Um, straight out of school. Uh, and the, the only problem that they're running into is a major problem, um, but it's the certification process, right? So they require these certifications, these bullshit certifications uh, that cost thousands and thousands of dollars. Council. What's that? You see council. Yeah, I, I, was, <laughs> I, was go, I was going there. <laughs> so it's, <laughs> it's actually funny because uh, the government, DOD requires the CEH for incoming contractors. CEH and at least two other certs that go with it, but they focus highly on the CEH. I don't know why CEH is shit cert. Um, and I don't think it's going to be around very much longer because EC council seems to have dug their grave and thrown some gasoline in and even tossed a match in there. Um, and I, I have no sympathy for them uh, with their misogynistic comments and plagiarism. Uh, there's no room for that in this, in this industry. Um, I mean, I, I know people outside the industry with that problem. Uh, we don't have that here. So the, the certification process is difficult. 
um, and these these kids are coming in and they're they're really sharp. Um, they get kind of blocked, and especially if they come from uh, an area where maybe they don't have the money, um, financially challenged. You know, how how are we supposed to get them in the door? These brilliant minds, when you know we're, we're charging them to walk through the door. I mean, we act as if the industry is some kind of elite group where you have to pay to get in, and I think that's bullshit. Um, so, what's your take on that, Christoph? Oh, definitely. That that is one of the struggles that I harp against on on my podcast. Uh, some of the ways that I recommend getting around that. Um, one. If they do their research and kind of like you mentioned earlier in regards to the book writing process, um, rather than doing a book or um, publishing to an article, if they create their own blog and they do it on a regular enough basis to where they're looking at something that's happening in the news, you're doing analysis, you're sharing their thoughts and insights, especially where hiring managers uh, hang out. So if they're on um, LinkedIn, post to LinkedIn. If they're on Twitter, post to Twitter. If they're on Reddit, post to Reddit. Um, wherever your dream company is, um, find out where those people hang out and then go post in their neck of the woods so that they can see it and they can, they can give you credit for seeing that. Um, that that's one way. Um, the other way it would be to do your own research, um, spin up your own labs, um, cloud services are relatively cheap. Uh, you, you can you can experiment. You have GitHub that has lots of tools that you can play with. Um, or if you don't have the experience in doing that yourself, you can try things like try Hack Me, Hack the Box, and other services that are out there that kind of walk you through that process um, after the flag type of events. Uh, those are different ways to test your skills. Um, if you're looking for th those more technical roles, um, it's a little harder for like risk and governance, security awareness, those type roles. Um, you, you more have to stay on sharing the message, on uh, doing the analysis and um, being more of an analyst type, at least for the beginning, to show that you can think in those ways and relate to users. Yeah, I absolutely. think if you're doing a security awareness role, you can do like video, video what are they vlogs is that what they're still called now um Vlo you can do vlogs, that TikTok. Vlog, yeah. <laughs> you can do them and kind of if you are explaining to people on linkedin or on twitter or whatever like a security concept then that kind of proves a point that you can train people in security right um but yeah i, think, I always think i always think video is a really good medium because it means that it, like anyone could have written what you've posted yeah exactly um, but like and you can it's easy to plagiarize whereas if you do it on video it's obviously coming out of your own mouth so I mean I'm not gonna lie when I do some panels I maybe borrow ideas of some of my friends and <laughs> say those um but I do actually articulate the idea myself and I think it proves that you know you've got the ability to articulate what it is that you're trying to convey yeah, absolutely. And with the kids that, that are trying to get into the industry um, and they're wanting to go pen testing or red teaming, um, a lot of them have, you know, played games as kids, you know, Xbox or whatever, you know, Steam or whatever. So I push them to um, YouTube and do their hacks, you know, play with Metasploit, play with some exploit tools and, and videotape it and, and, and post it. 
uh, get that exposure. Um, and I think that that's, it works really well in the discord that we have, we try to post as much information to help people out, uh, and get people involved. I think getting involved with a group or getting involved with uh, a meetup or, or a DEF CON group, um, from a red team point of view is probably the best idea, uh, simply because of the fact that if you're around like-minded people, those ideas seem to transfer easily. And knowledge transfer, I think, is, is the hardest part when you're first starting out is absorbing all that knowledge because there's so much and it changes so quickly. Uh, yeah, I, I, I like the idea of publishing and, and getting research out there. Um, that was one of the first things that we did when we started this group was put out a GitHub uh, so that people can publish their, their code and their tools uh, and get that exposure. Um, so state of the industry, let, let's talk about that for a second. Um, you know, I, I, I've had the fortunate and sometimes unfortunate um, exposure to different parts of the industry. Uh, I've seen the good, the bad, and the ugly. And uh, I think right now, um, with the critical infrastructure being targeted and you know the ransomware attacks picking up, we're doing ourselves a huge disservice by looking at people as employees, as numbers. Um, I think that we've we tend to lose that 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 personal aspect to it, and that's why I like you know the AU awards. I I like the you know cyber house party. You know the cool stuff. You know the stuff that that gives us a little you know another breath of fresh air, you know, a little cup of coffee or whatever. Uh, you know get that energy up, um, and we need more of that. I think we need more people interaction. And during the pandemic, it's been very difficult. Uh, we sit on Zoom and, and do everything remote. And to me, that's like, you know, it's so it's not personal. You know, I, I like to spend time with with my people, get to know who they are. As a matter of fact, um, we have uh, a co-host coming on shortly that, that does work for me. Um, and I'm really excited about that because, you know, one of the things that they said was, you know, hey, look, I'd really like to get involved with podcasting. You know, I want to try it. And I said, well, I have a prime opportunity for you. Um, and just exposure like that. You know, I don't think we give the newcomers enough, I guess, enough space or, you know, enough opportunity. Uh, we pigeonhole them because, you know, they haven't been in the industry very long or they don't know as much as the next person. And I think it's totally wrong. I, I'd like to get people, you know, exposed to different parts of the industry, whether it's, you know, someone on Chris Roberts level or someone who just walked in the door. Um, to me, getting those people together, no matter what the level is, uh, it helps the industry. But I think right now um, we're in a really bad situation as far as you know, looking at security as a whole and companies are gonna have to break down the walls and start communicating with each other and sharing information or else it's gonna be a clusterfuck with the ransomware and the infrastructure attacks. That's my take on it. How about yours, Christoph and then Amy? I would say that um, it's individuals like Chris Roberts, um, Alan Alfred, uh, Gary Hayslip, um, those types of individuals that I've reached out to as a, a newbie in the industry, and they were welcoming. They took me under their wing. They shared advice, and being connected to them and being exposed to their network has been instrumental in my career, and that's why I hope to do the same for others. Um, with regards to the, the state of the industry, I, I think being exposed to the business side, you get to see that um, security isn't everything. And 
being in the security side, you have to be able to communicate the risk effectively and to story tell uh, to, to seniors, to business owners, why this is important. And even if you have to come up with um, something that relates to them on a personal level as an analogy as to the risk, um, do that. Because if you don't translate it to an emotional level that they can feel it, um, they're gonna just say, well, I, I don't see the risk there or the risk isn't as big as the reward. Um, Colonial Pipeline, for example, I mean, they, they lost a couple hundred million dollars for not being able to sell oil in the meantime, but um, that, that was a risk-based decision for them. Like they, they got back up and whatever, we, we, we paid some millions of dollars in ransom. Uh, that's less than one, I think it was less than half a percent of their gross earnings last year. So that's a drop in the bucket for them. So for them, that was the, the risk-based decision that they chose. Um, so when you're talking to these senior leaders, you, you have to tell them in a way that's impactful to them why that's important. Um, and that's, that's the biggest shocker for, for those that are more on the technical side and they are just exposed to like, how can we secure it? But then they don't have that storytelling to the business side. Um, it becomes very shocking. And I, I like to say I play in between them. So I know just enough to be dangerous on the technical side. Um, like I got my AWS security cert, but you don't want me running your AWS infrastructure. Um, <laughs> that, that, that's how I like to say it. Like uh, I, I know how to secure it. I, I know the things to look at, um, but you probably don't want me being the one to do it. But I could talk to a security engineer and talk to them about different ways of securing it. And then they, they might go, oh, well, I didn't think about that. Um, or because they, they don't think outside the box, they're like just focused on their one service. Mm -hmm. um, you have to think with business logic, you have to think with user experience, you, you have to think with many hats when you're in security, not just securing the infrastructure. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's, I think it's spot on. And I, I really appreciate the CISOs and the directors who actually sit down with their people and work side by side. Um, that was one of the stipulations of, of me going to work for another company was the fact that you can't take the keyboard away from me. I, I don't want to be a manager manager. I, I want to be, you know, a team player and, and work side by side. Um, you build trust that way. And, and plus it's, it's interesting to me. Amy, how about you? What do you think about the industry as a whole right now? I think we're getting better um, so I got asked this question the other day like what do I think around like where we kind of sit and how to improve things um, and I was saying I've seen quite a lot of organizations take that CISO role from being underneath the CTO and being like alongside the CTO because if those two if like the CISO is reporting to the CTO then basically the CTO is marking his own homework which isn't really going to help anyone because he's never then going to go report back to the board and say fuck I've done some shit really badly um because <laughs> why would you do that um where the CISO I think the CISO needs if I think if we can start pulling the CISO into them into the board, board level then you get in like a unbiased view I guess of what's going on in terms of security and because security kind of pervades the entire 
organization it's not just an IT problem it doesn't make any sense for him to report into the CTO anyway um so yeah I think I think we may I think we're making positive steps in terms of kind of organizations understanding that um and security becoming more of an organizational issue rather than an IT problem um but I don't think we're quite there yet no, I, th- I think we got a ways to go. Ryan, what about you? What do you think about the state of the industry and, and where we're failing together? Um, because I think you have an interesting perspective on that. Yeah, well, as a newcomer, someone who's like fresh as to the industry, like I'm seeing all the stuff from the bottom up. You guys are looking from the top down. And um, it's with the entry level roles that I've been doing, it's been really interesting to see how. Uh, I wouldn't say a little respect, but little understanding like the Joe average business has about security, like uh, just convincing people to spend money on, on something that doesn't have that immediate return is like uh, the real challenge that I'm facing at the moment. Like I'm really interested to hear about this, the story that uh, Chris was talking about before the yarn that you spin. Yeah, Chris, Christoph, do you want it? Yeah. Off. Sorry, the yarn that I spin. <laughs> yeah, the, the story you, t- tell about the, you, you spoke about the story being able to, uh, yeah, so like a narrative to, I mean, it, it really differs based on what, what you're trying to convey, but you have to convey what's happening with the business, um, as a risk based decision. And, um, to, to do that, you have to take into consideration a lot of factors. You have to take in the vulnerability, the likelihood that the vulnerability will get attacked, what the threat actor would be or what they what they could do then, um, the threat landscape that you're in and how you relate to that threat landscape because it could be that you're a bigger player or you're a smaller player. Um, so taking that into consideration and then creating a, a story to tell leadership. I mean, if you're a big a big financial company, yeah, you're a big target. You're going to, you're going to be attacked. So you have to always have your game up. Um, if you're a smaller person, then you have to think about what can we do with the resources that we have available um, in order to minimize our threat surface that's out there. And it, it, while it's almost easier at a smaller level, because you don't think about it, right? because you don't think about it or you don't have someone that's there to think about it for you as a small company. Um, it all, it almost goes um, like unlooked at. So it, it's really just about like taking all those factors into play and then creating a personal story would mean like, I, I think Casey Ellis put a tweet out the other day with regards to looking at risk as being punched in the face, right? Um, and like then that idea. A, a recruiter from Australia um, <coughs> made a shirt out of it, so that, that's why I remembered it. Um, but but it was like that that the, the threat is being punched in the face. Um, the risk is like how likely am I to punch you in the face? Um, and then he responded, "Was the acceptable risk is how much do you like being punched in the face?" Um, so you just have to take all that into consideration and for example like colonial pipeline like i'm sure that at a risk level they have a buffer as to how much 
of their budget, you're willing to risk at any given time for an oil spill, um, uh, an incident or whatever. Do you not think the colonial pipeline issue could have been dealt with if they had a system that didn't allow toxic levels of chemicals to be put into the water and maybe limited it at <laughs> a lower level? But but that wasn't even the issue. Um, it was their billing system that was hacked. Yeah. And that's funny because the, the whole billing system is a front office function and they had it tied to the actual operations. But from what I understood from, from the inside, you know, data was the fact that it really wasn't connected, um, that they had to shut down the pipeline because they weren't able to bill people that were moving fluids and gases through that pipeline. So it was kind of a greedy move, but I mean, mm-hmm. still it, it saved their asses really. Yeah, exactly. It, it wasn't connected whatsoever. Um, it's not like the, the clear water, um, water system incident where uh, the attacker was actually able to um, manipulate the levels but someone looking was able to change it. Um, and luckily that they had a 24 hour delay safety system and any changes to the chemical level before it got to the water. Um, and, and that's one of the things when you think about like operational technology, um, most of the times you're there, they're on 24 seven and they have a lifespan of 20 to 30 years. So they, Truly takes safety seriously. The problem is when you go connect that to the internet, uh, just because you don't want a physical body standing in front of it, and you want to be able to manage um, the what, what was it, the tram system in Switzerland remotely, and then someone can hack into it and speed it up. Yeah, they had the uh, with that water situation. Um, that that was really interesting too because the uh, the attack came through TeamViewer, and the only way they found out was the guy sitting behind the desk was sitting there watching his mouse go all over the screen, and then they realized, oh shit, we've been hacked. And they were trying to, I think it was Lime that they were trying to dump into the uh, the water system, um, which could have caused a lot of people to get sick. Uh, but yeah, it's just, and it's those careless bullshit things where people don't patch or they, they put something like team viewer that hasn't been patched onto a network. Um, one of the companies in oil and gas, and I tell a story all the time, uh, I walked into this company as a director and realized that they had 500 eternal blue vulnerabilities on the network. And to them, that was acceptable risk because it was inside. And then I go into their knock and I find out that they're running VNC server with no credentials on the client's networks. And these, these are these are oil platforms, like major platforms that could like catch fire or, you know, kill people. Um, it's just things like that. And it's, I think that the magic word for all of it is acceptable risk. And there's a lot of companies out there that, that really don't know how to gauge acceptable risk um, because they're more worried about return on investment. Uh, and I think that's where a lot of companies get screwed. Um, I think I think a lot of security, like the CISOs or whatever, get like blinded by blinky box technology as well and forget about the foundational stuff. Like I was on a panel about AI earlier this week and I was like, well, surely protecting it. That was fun. Um, I was like, yeah, surely protecting your AI. If you're protecting AI, though, it's exactly the same thing because your AI solution is still just a big database on a network on a very, I appreciate that's a very oversimplified version of it, but, but it is. So you just need to patch it 
make sure you've got access controls in place have you using mfa etc like the, the fundamentals of security haven't changed for the last 20 years and i can't see how they're going to change that much in the next 20 years and the technology hasn't changed that much either when you look at security products it's the same shit just with a different wrapper on it which takes me to our next topic and i know you guys are going to like this because we talk about it all the time ai or should i say ai um so yeah, the AI, the, the whole idea, I think is horseshit. Um, Bayes' algorithm only goes so far uh, to predict future behavior and off of past experiences. Um, and the way, okay, so people who are listening who don't understand how AI works, AI takes a machine, looks at that machine in a group of machines and looks at the behavior, then takes that group of machines and compares it to another group of machines and looks at that behavior. And as a whole, and holistically, that's where you get your AI. Problem is, is people are taking this AI technology and dropping into shithole networks that are already compromised. So platforms like Darktrace or, or, or other AI platforms, um, you toss them in and they're like, oh shit, PowerShell all over the place. Hey, that's, that's legit because it was here when I got here and all the machines are doing it. So it, you know, it's good. Um, and I think we're so far off from having like true AI Maybe machine learning, we might be close to true machine learning, uh, but AI, I don't think that we're even near where we need to be. What are y'all's take on that? Christoph? Amy? <laughs> yes, you may. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't think, I don't, well, I don't think, no, I don't think we've got AI just yet. I think it's probably coming though, having read Rick Ferguson's very good 2030 white paper for my last panel. <laughs> <laughs> um, I do think I do think we will be there with with AI. Um, yeah, but it's nowhere near now. And I, th I don't know. I was talking about on this panel. I don't think AI is going to be like a massive attack vector because I mean, if you've got AI in your organization, people might try to attack your AI service. So um, on that panel, I talked about people like poisoning your data lake. So if you've got a load of data that the machines learning off then if you poison that, like you said, if you've got a UEBA solution and you stick it on a network that's already got a load of shit in it, what's it going to learn? It's going to learn that this shit's normal, right? Um, so yeah, if you, po like if you the poison in the poison in the data lake or even the threat of poison in the data lake, like if you're producing food in a factory and someone says, well, we've poisoned your data lake to put like too much salt in everything, what are you going to do? Fucking <laughs> carry on letting it produce it or you got to go check it out on you. So you're going to have to put a halt to something. Um, but yeah, I don't think in terms like AI, I guess, well, it won't, I don't think it's going to be AI that does the attacking. I think it'll be more like um, you might use it for like scalability. So being able to scrape a lot of information off someone's Facebook page and then send them a more personalized spear phishing email, I guess. Um, but I don't think, I mean, ransomware gives attackers so much fucking return on investment. It's unreal. So what's the point of AI? Well, the, the only point that I see with AI is malware, right? So if you build AI into malware or ransomware um, and give it the capability to look at the environment and move to different routes through the environment based on AI and based on machine behavior, um, it could be a little lethal. But again, you know, I think the attackers will get AI correct before we get AI correct. What do you think, Christoph? You don't need AI for that. You can use machine learning for that. Like, I think most people's definition of AI um, 
is it for it to think for itself. Mm. And that's different than a very complex if then statement, because if you create, you could create that with machine learning, you can have it look at the different potential vectors. Mm. Um, you could have it do assessments, you can have it based on a certain probability choose or not choose to do a certain decision um, that could already be done with machine learning. And I mean, nothing against the people against uh, at dark trace. I don't think they have an AI. I think they have a, a very complex machine learning system that um, may or may not work, but that's up to them. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think when it comes to um, the, the future, like if you have a good AI, it, it is going to be immune to things like poisoning the data lakes because it's going to take that threat into consideration. It's going to make multiple very decisions and go look at all the different outputs. It might be 10, 20 different outputs. And then based on those 20 different outputs, then choose to make a decision based on that. So even if it had a version of a poison database, um, it could choose to omit that from any decision making. Um, so yeah, so I, I think we're a far, far away away from there right now. Um, I think right now we just have very sophisticated machine learning. I think our uh, I think our attack drones and uh, the UAVs that have a little bit of machine learning and, and AI technology in it um, are far beyond what we have in cybersecurity. Uh, and the reason being is because the uh, military industrial complex has that money to dump into that type of AI, that type, that type of uh, attack tool. Um, so some of the systems in the military and the government, um, some of the groundbreaking, uh, groundbreaking stuff is really interesting. Uh, some of the war games that, that we were involved with in Suffolk uh, in Virginia was really interesting, um, the way that they play out scenarios. So the inputs were from the officers, right? And they were given a scenario and the officers would put in the inputs and the AI would run, true AI would run and look at those inputs and predict the outcome of the skirmish or, or the conflict. Uh, and needless to say that a couple of the uh, scenarios that I watched um, live was kind of scary because the inputs from the officers ended up in a nuclear war. So, <laughs> you know, not something, that, not something I want AI to decide for me. Um, but yeah, I think I definitely a way off um, from, from AI. So I another think the, the military points are interesting. Um, I was talking to um, someone at Microsoft the other week and they were saying that they'd done a load of tests with AI where they'd convinced that it would convince the machine that like a plane was a building so it couldn't identify a military base mm -hmm. and that kind of thing. So I think that's quite interesting. And I watched a program on BBC4 only I don't normally watch BBC Four. I'm not that embarrassing, I promise. Um, <laughs> someone just told me there was a program about AI on it, um, and that was like they were they were saying like if you just manipulate a couple of pixels in like in like a picture of a dog, the AI can't identify the dog, and it was it showed you like what the pixels look like, and it was actually quite an interesting program. So you know, go on iPlayer and go go watch it if you're interested. So some they of the also did that with Teslas. Um, changing the the speeds of the road signs um, mm -hmm. just by a quick a quick line across the road sign that the, the Tesla couldn't recognize what the the speed was anymore, um, as well as manipulating the environment to where it couldn't function properly. Yeah, and that's that's really interesting too because when you look at even like the commercial drones that are out there that have the capability to identify objects and maneuver around objects. I recently uh, had a drone and I launched it and it hit some magnetic interference 
which was the very first time I've ever seen that. And we live on top of a mountain on 27 acres where there is really no, no magnetic anything. And uh, so I hit the go home button for the drone to do its, you know, automatic GPS location. And, and it ended up taking a dive straight into the ground and destroyed itself. And I thought, if this is a feature of AI, fuck this, I don't want it. <laughs> That's an expensive crash. So with, uh, with AI, you know, we covered that. Um, what would you, what would you give advice? How would you give advice to somebody getting into cybersecurity, um, from different aspects? Let's, let's go red team, blue team. Um, what would your advice be to somebody coming in fresh that doesn't know anything about either one of them? I would say similar to a, a challenge that I put out on my social media is, um, pick pick a job description, whether that's a red team or a blue team job description. Um, look at six or seven different roles from different companies and in different industries. Uh, see what you're looking for in the job description. Uh, do a self-assessment against yourself. See how you stack up, where the gaps are, where you need to make some improvements. Um, certs, they might be asking for things like that. Um, reach out to individuals in those roles, right? Um, ask to talk about a day in the life of that role. And by the time you get done with doing that, you can see if that's a role that you really want to do by having that separate conversation with those different people about a day in the life of seeing where your gaps are and if it's really worth it. Because in, at the end of the day, if the role requires, say, a lot of audit work and you hate checking numbers or um, like looking if every I was dotted and every T was crossed, um, that's going to go against your passions and that's going to burn you out if you have to do that day in, day out. And you can find that out ahead of time um, just by interviewing individuals that are in the role. And if they're telling you what they have to do and you talk to five or six different people, every role is likely going to require some aspect of that. Um, sure, you could find this one random company where it doesn't, but um, if you grow in your career, you'll end up back in that same spot. So that might not be the, the right role for you. So kind of do that investigation ahead of time before you go out and you start applying for a role that you don't know anything about. How about you, Amy? Yeah, that's like the opposite of my advice. Yeah, that's like the opposite of my advice. My advice, my advice is go find a job in cyber, like literally any job, anyone, because you, you can literally pivot between roles so easily. I know so many people have pivoted from being in a SOC analyst to a pen tester because you've got the same, you've got a very similar skill set across every role. So if you, well, I mean, the whole skills gap thing is a load of bollocks because do you know what? There's about 50 people applying for every one entry level role, right? So you've got to make yourself stand out. There's no, if there was a skills gap, you everyone who applied for a job would just get the job, but they don't do that because there isn't a skills gap because we've all, because there's like 50 people applying for every one fucking job. So if you can get a job in cyber, go get one and then work out what you want to do when you get there. But get into the industry first, go network with some people, get yourself known, do some shit that's cool, and then you can move into whatever job you want. But you probably won't know what job you want when you first start anyway, because or, no one ever does. Or falsify your CV. Who knows? Yeah. I, <laughs> I know. 
um yeah you you got into it fairly easy compared to some of the, the folks that i talked to i mean some of them like they've been job hunting for eight nine months um they've they're not, been they're not they putting did, the like, right thing on the cv then they're not putting the right they're not they're not proving to the industry that why they're worth but why, why they're worth getting the job what are they doing that's different to everyone you've got to stand out there's that many people there's, this is what i mean there's no skills gap there's that many people applying for every role you have to make yourself stand out so post about stuff that you've been doing on try hack me explain what you did or make a video about it or make a website about it or blog about it or whatever go talk to some people join in with events like comment like when you're if you're watching youtube videos get involved in the chat and stuff like how else are you going to get yourself known that's the, the one thing that i teach every single person that i'm mentoring is go and fucking network right that's the yep. only way that you're going to get a job so you need to know some people so skills gap, let's talk about skills gap for a second. And I'll, this is my theory on skills gap. And I may be right. I may be wrong. Who knows? But I, th I think I'm close. The problem with the skills gap, there is none, right? So we have entry-level positions and we have mid-level positions. What happens is when the mid-level moves up, they don't bring the entry-level people up to that mid-level. They fuck them and leave them right where they're at. And because they, they don't want to have to go searching for an entry level. So there, there's tons of jobs. Problem is, is that the companies are not hiring the way that they're supposed to hire. They're not promoting from within. Um, and that's a huge, huge issue. And that's one of the things that I look at when, you know, when I have teams is who on my team is ready to move up? Um, who, who can handle the second level? Who can handle the third level? That way I can go out and give somebody else that needs a chance another chance um you know to get them in the door it would be so much it would be so much cheaper if you hired from within your own if you promoted people within your business to the next level as well like people go out and, and hire someone else from for a, a mid-level role and i think you're spending like 8 10 15k on fucking commission to a recruiter that you don't need to spend it on when you've literally got someone who's in your office sat right there but then if the people in your office sat right there again and not proving to themselves proving to you why they should be worth why they're worth moving up in the world then yeah i get why people don't do it and you're right mike um most of the times they look at the individual leaving the role and they were a job description based on that individual rather than where they were two, two to three years ago when they got hired. Uh, that, that's one problem. The other problem you have is those that are coming into the industry thinking that they could go and get to a certain level because they completed a course or because they did this, because they did that. And then you're applying for roles that are two, three levels above them mm -hmm. um, because they're like, oh, well, I, I, I have the skills to do it. And they haven't really self-assessed where they are. Um, or for, for individuals that are transitioning from another role into the industry is that you're aiming two to three levels too low. A hiring manager looks at their, their resume, their CV, and going, uh, you're way too overqualified for this role. If I put you in here, you're going to be bored or you're going to catch up really quickly and you'll be gone in 12 months. Um, so I'd rather not hire you. So that, that's most of the time where I tell individuals, if you're applying for a role, you meet 60, 70% max of the role and apply for it. Because if you meet 90 to 100% of the role, you're, A, you're going to be bored. Mm -hmm. um, and then B, the hiring manager is going to have that same 
in feeling that you're going to max out really quickly and they don't want to take that risk in you. Yeah, exactly. Right. Ryan, what was your, uh, what was your entry into cybersecurity? Like uh, the interview process and, and, you know, the skills and, and the things that they were requiring, what was it like? I didn't have one, mate. No. Um, in Australia, it was tough. Um, basically I just, I was doing the, uh, what is it? Certificate four in cybersecurity. Um, it's a, it's a good course, but there's 17,000 people coming out every six months with the same, the same qualification. So I just started learning everything I could, doing every course that I could find, talking to all the strange weirdos who do podcasts, you know, getting involved with a couple, um, you know, and just getting myself out there, doing exactly what Amy said, posting on LinkedIn like a maniac, um, helping people I know who are more experienced get jobs if I heard of something. And then through some, I recommended someone to a company in the US and apparently that worked out well. And three months later, they came back and offered me a remote position, which is where I'm at now. So awesome. Awesome. Well, no interview required. We're at the end of our hour and I know Christoph has some, some stuff to do with the family. It's a holiday weekend. Um, so I'm going to, uh, let him, you know, you have any questions for us? If not, no, it's, no? It, it's been, it's been a great chat. Um, if, if it were in a week, um, I'd stay a little bit longer, but, um, my, my family's already upset that I'm doing this. So, uh, I devoted, I really appreciate the time. I really appreciate the audience. I've been following this group for a long time. Um, and I'm truly honored and, uh, Amy's an amazing co-host. Uh, she's fabulous. Uh, so I'll, I'll give her shout outs and uh, ho hopefully she'll continue to co-host for you as well. <laughs> Thanks, Christoph. We appreciate it. And you're welcome anytime. I'd love to have you back on the show sometime soon. Absolutely. Thanks, man. Okay. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Thank you, Amy. Yes, Amy is fantastic. So a couple announcements before we shut everything down. Um, we have a new Instagram, uh, Haunted Hacker Instagram. We now have the SoundCloud, we have all kinds of stuff that's coming out. We're moving the podcast to a paid subscription for the live event. Um, the videos are still going to be free and it's still going to be on TechStrong TV. Uh, but due to certain circumstances in the internet and the underworld, we're going to have to limit uh, exposure to the live event. Um, so no big deal. I like the intimate, I like the intimacy better than, uh, than a ton of people who we don't know. And, and, you know, it, tends to be a little bit more taxing uh, on me as a host and, and everybody else that looks out for the security of the podcast. So with that, um, I will see you guys next weekend. Enjoy the fourth. Uh, look for more uh, attacks tomorrow. Um, they're coming and uh, <laughs> stay safe. I'll see you guys later. See you guys. Welcome everybody to the Haunted Hacker podcast. I think this is episode like 35 now. I kind of lost track. Um, so I'll go through the general housekeeping and, and stuff like that. Although we don't have to have it because today's a kind of an intimate uh, podcast for special reasons. Um, so we won't be uh, having to lock down the chat. So you guys can put uh, questions in the chat for uh, our guest. And uh, let's go over some news really quick. So um, I finally got a state ID. That was a big, 
a big win for me. Um, spent let's see two years, three years without ID, without an identity. Um, finally got one back. Uh, and also, so I started my, my, my new job this week and uh, it was really cool. Um, got a lot of really good people working for me. Uh, really great company. Um, and also in the news, like we saw some really cool stuff uh, the other day. Um, heard about it. There was a company that got uh, hit with a ransomware and the ransomware attackers actually went into the SAN, deleted all of the, the uh, snapshots um, encrypted the sand, then encrypted all the VMs. Um, and this was, you know, pr probably, I think the second time they'd been hit. Um, so now we've crossed the threshold where backups are no longer um, the solution. Uh, so I'm trying to figure out what's going to happen next. Uh, also, um, Casilla, the uh, application, the platform that got um, smashed, uh, found out about it right before it hit. Um, we had picked up word in one of the uh, forums um, that a zero day was going to drop on that platform. And literally before I could get news out, um, they had fired it up and really like started destroying stuff. Uh, made my life a little miserable for a bit. Um, luckily, though, it didn't trickle over to the U.S. Not that I know of so far. Uh, and the platform that, that they attacked is kind of a rare platform over here. Um, a lot of people have moved off of it. So, you know, I, I don't think it's probably the end of it. Probably hear more about it um, and probably at least switching agents. Uh, I look for uh, the next attack to be something like an EDR agent attack, uh, maybe something like CrowdStrike or uh, FireEye, BlackEye, FireEye. I think that's what it's called. Um, yeah, so probably, uh, probably something like that pretty soon. Um, I'm starting to see a lot of agent driven attacks and it makes sense because, you know, it's like a river. Why would you go upstream, just follow the river and, and wherever it goes, just infect everything. Um, so we have a new co-host tonight and I'm really happy about this. Um, she does the cyber house party, which by the way, I was nominated for and didn't win. Um, I blame Blame Amy for that. AU awards, not Cyber House Party. AU awards. AU awards, yeah, yeah. Same, well, same thing. It's, it's all the same people, right? So. <laughs> yeah, kind of. So we have Amy tonight. Um, she's going to be one of our, our new co-hosts. And uh, really looking forward to that. Add a little bit of pizzazz to the uh, podcast. Um, and I'll let our guest introduce himself and give us a little bit of background about himself. And uh, then we'll kick it off. Uh, <clears throat> a little background about me. Um, I'm Chris, Christophe Lulon, Chris Lulon. I've been doing the uh, Breaking into Cybersecurity podcast for the past uh, three years. And uh, it's been going really well. And decided that I was going to take it, summarize it, and put it into a book format. Um, worked along with my co-host who is a recruiter and Gary Hayslip, who's a CISO, to provide three different perspectives, that of senior leadership, that of a recruiter, and that of a practitioner. So we uh, released this book um, just this week. So we're here to talk about it and answer any career-related questions. That's awesome. Um, you know, to take that knowledge and put it into a book uh, is pretty amazing. Um, a lot of people have 
you know, I've, I've thought about doing a book, but I'm so intimidated by it. So kudos for, for taking that on and actually, you know, cranking it out. Uh, that's a huge accomplishment, I think. Um, so you've been around the, the Haunted Hacker for a while um, over in the uh, Discord and, and kind of hanging out. Um, and uh, I was really looking forward to, to having you on the show. Uh, so why don't you tell us about about the book and you know everything that, that went into it and you know some of the theories behind it and uh, we'll talk about that and open up some questions. Yeah, so um, it started. I, I had an idea from the podcast, like um, what were the common themes that have emerged from interviewing people um, over the past five years, as well as my own uh, the past years and my own experience um and then I, I tried to create a framework of sorts for it um how could i break this down um first of all like most of the times you get you the first question you get is i want to break into cybersecurity," and i asked them okay where and that that's the first thing that thumbs people so um, finding out your passion, obviously, is kind of the first, the first subject in the book and kind of talks about there and then it kind of goes through the evolution from like uh, doing a self assessment of where you are now. Um, how to research roles, how to look at roles, um, and then do another assessment of how you can get to where you want to go. Um, ways to network um, within the community reach out to hiring managers, um, ways to tweak your resume, um, ways, ways to translate what you've done into value propositions so that when you do have those interviews and you do talk to those hiring managers, it's more than just, oh, I ran the fan, okay? Well, what else did you do? How did you save the money? How did you drive value? How did you make it more secure? Maybe you made them ransom more resilient. Um, so find find ways to, to uh, show the value that you bring to the organization uh, through that. Um, and then it all wraps up like at the end, hey, now you got in, you, you have to keep going. It doesn't just stop there. It's a continuous evolution. Um, so I, I kind of broke it down into that framework and I. I reached out to um, Renee, who's my co-host, and asked her if she was interested in doing it. And she, she was, but she was also so busy as a recruiter. Um, in this day and age, like recruiters are always so busy. Um, so while I had her interest, I, I, I figured I wanted to get someone that was also very experienced in the industry. And I knew uh, Gary Hayslip from uh, his book, The CISO Desktop Guides. So I thought that would be really interesting to bring um, a senior leadership perspective um, into it. So he also had the connection from um, publishing uh, those previous books that he could make it easy. Um, I've looked into the self-publishing route and it seems really hard. Um, I later figured out it's actually that it's not that hard and we can we can talk about that, Mike, if you want, but um, going into it with um, a known publisher did make it easy because you had um, the resources that come along with that, an editor, um, someone that can help with graphics, someone that can help with um, backend research and um, helping you craft your message. Because saying 
me putting my thoughts on a page might come across good to me, but someone else reading it might go, oh, yeah, that doesn't make sense. So that back and forth process actually took close to a year um, in like edits. Um, and it, it was a collaborative process because each of the each of the co-authors uh, reviewed each other's sections of the book. Uh, so we all wrote the same sections from our different perspectives and we each um, reviewed and and did suggestions on um, more resources that they could add or um, maybe if someone didn't finish a, a statement or a thought um, and them on to, to finish that off and um, so it, it was a really good collaborative process and um, I was just happy <laughs> that it was done after a, a year of editing um, but yeah that's that's really cool um... So I tried to go down a route of doing some some independent publishing. Uh, I got onto Amazon and uh, was trying to use their I think it's called KDR or something like that um, mm -hmm. to publish publish a book um, in our magazine. We've got a couple of magazines we have, uh, and I ran into a huge roadblock. And the community there was not very um, helpful. Uh, it was more of you know, a shaming type situation where, oh, well, you don't know what you're doing. Well, of course not. That's why I'm here. Uh, so that, yeah. that, that's intimidating. Um, so when you, when you talk about people coming into breaking into cybersecurity, what, what do you find that, that most of the people are aimed towards? Um, from, from my point of view and from my experience, a lot of people, they're, they're not really sure about what's inside of cybersecurity. It's like a walnut that they can't see inside until they break it open. Um, and so I, I try to find yeah, out, I'm, um, go ahead. I was going to say like, I'm mentoring a load of people at the moment. And I said to them, like the first session I had with them, if you all tell me you want to be pen testers, like go and get a different mentor because that's not the only job that's in cyber. There's like so many other things you could do. Um, and I think that like looking from the outside in, a lot of people think that there's like pen testers or CISOs and that's the only two roles. I don't know if that's what like everyone else seems to, seems to find. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, go ahead, Christoph. Go ahead, Mike. Um, so, uh, yeah, oftentimes a, a lot of folks, um, they want to come in on the red teaming side, um, but they don't really understand that um, the, the skill set, um, the experience needed to really come in on that side. Um, and they think that they could go to a boot camp and just do it. Um, so mo most of the times it's, it's usually a, um, awakening for them that it's not that easy, but then you can have a conversation about, uh, transferable skills, like, um, ask them about what, what they've done, what they like doing, and then make suggestions. Um, have you looked at this type of role or this type of role? And, um, in the U S the, um, NIST created a nice framework that kind of breaks down down some of the different types of roles into skills, competencies, and knowledge areas. So lately I've been pointing people to that um, so that they can research based on the different types of roles, what sort of skills and competencies and knowledge they should have um, to be successful in one of those type, one of those roles. Yeah, it seems like a lot of people when yes, they- go look for a link for that. When they think about um, cybersecurity, you're right. They, they think about red teaming because their example of uh, cybersecurity is what they see on TV 
Mr. Robot, stuff like that. And immediately they think, oh, well, that sounds like a really cool job to have. And then when they get in and they realize the work that goes into it, I think a lot of people change their mind. Um, so that's one of the things that, that I try to look for when I'm mentoring people or trying to help people get into cybersecurity is the psychology, right? I think the psychology is important um, because not everybody's crafted to be a blue teamer or a red teamer. Um, it takes all types. Um, we had a, a guy on the show last weekend uh, that was talking about, you know, the fact that there's all kinds of things in cybersecurity that people can do. And it doesn't necessarily have to do with ones and zeros. It could be marketing. It could be sales. Um, there's a lot of things people can do and mentoring too in sales. Um, usually, yeah, usually when Amy gets mentees, uh, I get a phone call and, and get to talk to groups of people and, and <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of fun. Um, so yeah, yeah I mean, on a, on a podcast, we've had people that come from physical therapy, um, CPAs, uh, the military, um, li uh, librarian, um, all, all sorts of different backgrounds. So, um, no matter where you're from, you're welcome. And I think that's one of the things that I, I try to uh, share in the show is that we need that diverse group of individuals mm -hmm. so that we can look at the problem in a diverse way and come up with new and creative solutions. Because if you look at it the same way all the time, you'll get the same results all the time. Yeah, yeah one of the girls that I mentored, she was a teacher. And then she's got a job as a security awareness trainer because she knows the skills to be able to teach people stuff. It was just the content she needed to learn. Um, so that, yeah, that, that was quite an interesting switch of career, I guess. Yeah, it's pretty crazy looking at some of the different careers that, that go into it. I see a lot of people from the military um, actually crossing into cybersecurity or coming from cybersecurity in the military into um, a commercial world. Uh, that didn't used to always be the case. Um, up until about 2003-ish, uh, the Navy didn't even have a cybersecurity rate, um, a warfare rate. Uh, so a lot of that is new, and we have a lot of people that are coming straight from the military into cybersecurity, which I think is a really good thing, um, because with that perspective, you see a lot of stuff that, that the commercial world doesn't see, uh, a lot of classified attacks, a lot of operations that, that are really brutal but i mean they're, they're really interesting as well um we have ryan on as well i think he's hiding from us uh feel free to jump in with questions ryan um hey you have any you have any questions man no not yet man not yet cool cool i'm <laughs> glad i'm glad you're awake by the way so yeah, i was gonna say is it not too early in australia for you to have any questions <laughs> i would have none at six o'clock in the morning yeah, so as far as writing books, let's talk about that for a second. Um, going through a publisher, how did you, how did you, first of all, how did you find a publisher? And second of all, how did you go about it? Because one of the, the things that frustrate me about looking for a publisher was looking at how much it costs to even start the book. Um, one of the publishers I spoke to, they wanted something like 10 grand to start. And, uh, you know, I work in cybersecurity. I don't have 10 grand. So how did you do that? Oh, well, that, that's where I came in with my network, right? Um, so Gary was part of the um, desktop reference guide, CISO desktop reference guide. So uh, he had the connection um, with the publishing company. They were open to doing a series like that. Um, 
So it just became, you're hedging the risk on publishing the series, um, but then you you lose out a little bit in your royalties. But um, it's if you're writing a book, first and foremost, I'll say it's a labor of love. Um, uh, unless you, you expect to be on the New York, um, the New York Times bestseller list for years on end, um, it, you're, you're, it's just it's just for the pleasure of it, right? right. Um, I've talked to some other uh, authors in, in my network, and some of the mistakes uh, they made, for example, when finding um, a publishing company, is they helped with the publishing. Um, and that was it. Uh, they didn't help with the editing. They didn't help with the marketing. So as you go out and you're looking for a publisher, make sure that you're going to help with all those things, especially the marketing um, when it comes to that. Because um, if you're stuck at the end with a book and you're the only one marketing and you're a team of one, uh, that, that's really hard to do. Um, so even though you can rely on your network, if you have a company that can help with that, uh, it's definitely a lot more helpful, like uh, a Wiley or an O'Reilly or something like that. Yeah, like No Starch Press or something like that. Um, we oh. have an we have an indie magazine that Ryan put together, um, and I tell you what, like I really want to get that on shelves. Uh, I went through Amazon trying to publish it there, and I got rejected because they don't do indie magazines. Um, something about multiple authors and you know publishing rights and just chaos. Uh, so Ryan has it on a website issue, issue.com um, that, I mean, it's a fantastic magazine. The graphics are amazing. The content is from every, everybody in the group, uh, whether you're a newcomer or experienced like a veteran. It, it, I mean, there's, there's articles for everybody and it gives them a chance to, the idea behind the magazine was give everybody in the group and people that were new into security um, a chance to get their voice out there and to get known. Um, one of the problems that I see with people getting into cybersecurity is, you know, they're required to have X amount of experience and, and all these certs just to have an entry level position. Um, so with having an, a, an article in a magazine, at least that gives you somewhere to start. Um, so, I mean, the, the indie the indie magazine world is a little, a little tight, I think. Um, some of our competitors, if we were to, to publish it, would be something like 2600 or, or Hack and Nine magazine. Uh, and I, I'd like to think that we're we're up there with them. Um, but the process is, is difficult, right? We have uh, a couple of people that actually one person that does the graphics and the layout, which is Ryan. And then uh, we have multiple people who do articles and advertisements and vendors and stuff like that. Um, so it's, it's a very small operation uh, and Ryan works really hard, um, but it's just a matter of trying to figure out the right path. Um, and I think, being in the industry for, for 20 years, 20 plus years, it's, you know, you see people writing books and I've had friends who wrote books like Jeremiah Grossman and, and Robert Hansen. And it's like, you know, I, I want to do it, but it's, it's like, it's one of those mystical things that nobody really knows until you go through the process. Uh, and just listening to, to different people's stories is amazing. Um, so how did you get into cybersecurity to begin, to begin with? What was your journey like? Uh, well, I think it started with me as a teenager. I grew up in the Caribbean and um, my parents had a marine hardware business. One of the few that had computers on the island at the time. And I remember as a kid, um, the local computer tech came to 
I think, swap out a hard drive or something that went bad. And when I saw her working on it, I'm like, what, what are you doing? L let me see in there. Um, and then I've been en enamored by it ever since. So uh, by the time I was like 11 or 12, I would spend my entire summer in her cafe, but I wouldn't be surfing. I would be reimaging machines, removing viruses, um, troubleshooting. Um, that's how I started. Um, but then by, by the time I got to college, there have been so many people with like CS degrees that I, I saw in the news that like there's they're they're uh, deflated in value because there's so many people with those types of degrees and I'm like I don't like um, science anyway and back then there was no really computer degrees uh, you had to do math and physics and I don't like that shit um, <laughs> sorry for my language but no, no. I, I don't like that I was like uh, screw that um, so. I decided that I was going to do a business degree with emphasis on information systems um, and just kind of went there, started out in help desk after a couple of sales roles um, and moved my way up. Um, from, from my first role in help desk, I, I saw people like um, focusing on security and I'm like, ooh, I like that. Like, um, I remember helping someone on in my first week and they had posted uh, uh, all their passwords right under their keyboard and I go, that can't be right. Um, <laughs> but that, that, that's how they did it because they didn't know any better. So it was like, how can we educate the users to, to be more secure? And that, that was just the start of it. Um, but it, it was a long process to have that first quote unquote formal security title, it really took almost seven years um, because once you have a certain background, um, people want to hire you for that background. And if you don't tweak your resume or uh, tell security related stories in your interview, you get labeled as a help desk, you get labeled as a blue teamer. Um, so you end up only getting those types of roles. So that, that was one of the things that I learned in my experience is that you have to tweak your resume for the role you want, not, not your past. Because if you focus on all the stuff you did in the past, you'll keep getting the same roles and you struggle to make that full uh, that transition. Um, and that, that the official transition happened when I just, I said, I was living in South Florida and I said, F it, I'm going to move. Um, and I moved across the country, I moved up to the DC area and took a role consulting, um, a government contractor type gig, uh, supporting the government cloud. So, uh, that's how I got into security. And that's, that's pretty awesome. Yeah. The, uh, <laughs> so speaking about passwords, I heard Amy has her password tattooed on her arm. Just a rumor though. Um, so Amy, how did you get in? <laughs> How did you get into cybersecurity, Amy? Um, I was just laughing about this when Christoph was saying how did, when he was like, you should um, go for the like write your CV for the job that you want rather than the rather than your past. Um, because I maybe let's slip when I was drunk on his podcast that I um, maybe lied on my CV and told everyone that I had definitely sold security stuff before when I hadn't. Um, <laughs> and turned up on my first day in the in the job and was like. 
fuck what the hell is like AAD stand for I don't know what that means um and I had to sit and like google everything that I'd taught like vaguely alluded to in the interview um but I picked it up really quickly and now I do know what I'm talking about I promise I'm not faking it anymore awesome. <laughs> maybe a little bit awesome yeah I, I, I my one of my first jobs was a DSL admin back when they first had DSL I worked for a company that had co uh COVAD COVAD DSL um, sounds a lot like COVID. Uh, anyways, yeah, I, I worked for them. And, and it was funny because when I, when I support, people will call up and ask the dumbest questions. And I knew that that was not for me because I would have to put them on hold and cuss them the fuck out because I, I couldn't handle it. Like they would call up and I had one guy who said, uh, yeah, I need to get on the internet. I said, okay, well, you know, double click on my computer. And I heard a tapping noise and I'm like, what the hell is that noise? That doesn't sound like a mouse. And come to find out he had the mouse on the screen, tapping on the screen. I just, at that point, I was like, you know, fuck this. I can't do it. Um, so I went from that to uh, some other things and, and kind of drifted into um, cybersecurity kind of through the back door, I guess, or made some back doors. I don't know. Um, but yeah, that, that's how I ended up in it. I know Ryan has an interesting story as well. Um, Ryan, what, how did you get into cybersecurity? Uh, I just watched Hackers and wanted to hack the Gibson. That was it. Yeah. You know? um, now I've been in the music industry for 20 years and um, because of COVID, that just kind of ended. And it's true. I actually was watching Hackers and decided, yep, I can do that. Let's go. That is the, literally the story that I've heard from so many people. So when I do my mentor sessions, I bring a new person in every week to talk to the group. And like five people that I've brought in have been like, yeah, I watched Hackers and I thought that was really fucking cool. So I was going to go do that as a job. Like, I've never seen... Maybe I should watch this film. You have not watched Hackers and you're in cybersecurity. Girl. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's you should pr probably watch that. Okay. I'll check it out. Yeah, so... Um, a lot of... Uh, it seems like a lot of kids are trying to get into cybersecurity as well. Um, straight out of school. Uh, and the, the only problem that they're running into is a major problem, um, but it's the certification process, right? So they require these certifications, these bullshit certifications uh, that cost thousands and thousands of dollars. Council. What's that? Easy council. Yeah, I, I, was, <laughs> I, was go, I was going there. <laughs> so it's, <laughs> it's actually funny because uh, the government, DOD requires the CEH for incoming contractors. CEH and at least two other certs that go with it, but they focus highly on the CEH. I don't know why CEH is shit cert. Um, and I don't think it's going to be around very much longer because EC council seems to have dug their grave and thrown some gasoline in and even tossed a match in there. Um, and I, I have no sympathy for them uh, with their misogynistic comments and plagiarism. Uh, there's no room for that in this, in this industry. Um, I mean, I, I know people outside the industry with that problem. Uh, we don't have that here. So the, the certification process is difficult. Um, and these, these kids are coming in and they're, they're really sharp. Um, they get kind of blocked. And especially if they come from uh, an area where maybe they don't have the money, um, financially challenged, you know, how, how are we supposed to get them in the door, these brilliant minds when, you know, we're, we're charging them to walk through the door. I mean, we act as if the industry is some kind of elite group where you have to pay to get in. And I think that's bullshit. Um, so what's your take on that, Christoph? 
Oh, definitely. That that is one of the struggles that I harp against on on my podcast. Uh, some of the ways that I recommend getting around that. Um, one, if they do their research and kind of like you mentioned earlier in regards to the book writing process, um, rather than doing a book or um, publishing to an article, if they create their own blog and they do it on a regular enough basis to where they're looking at something that's happening in the news, you're doing analysis, you're sharing their thoughts and insights, especially where hiring managers uh, hang out. So if they're on um, LinkedIn, post to LinkedIn. If they're on Twitter, post to Twitter. If they're on Reddit, post to Reddit. Um, wherever your dream company is, um, find out where those people hang out and then go post in their neck of the woods so that they can see it and they can they can give you credit for seeing that. Um, that that's one way. Um, the other way it would be to do your own research, um, spin up your own labs. Um, cloud services are relatively cheap. Uh, you, you can you can experiment. You have GitHub that has lots of tools that you can play with. Um, or if you don't have the experience in doing that yourself, you can try things like try Hack Me, Hack the Box, and other services that are out there that kind of walk you through that process um, after the flag type of things. Uh, those are different ways to test your skills. Um, if you're looking for th those more technical roles, um, it's a little harder for like risk and governance, security awareness, those type roles. Um, you, you more have to stay on sharing the message, on doing the analysis and um, being more of an analyst type, at least for the beginning, to show that you can think in those ways and relate to users. Yeah, I think absolutely. if you're doing a security awareness role, you can do like video, video, what are the vlogs? Is that what they're still called now? Um, you can do vlogs. that. Nice vlog, yeah. <laughs> you can do them and kind of, if you are explaining to people on LinkedIn or on Twitter or whatever, like a security concept, then that kind of proves a point that you can train people in security, right? Um, but yeah, I always think I always think video is a really good medium because it means that it, like anyone could have written what you've posted. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but like, and you can it's easy to plagiarize. Whereas if you do it on video, it's obviously coming out of your own mouth. So I mean, I'm not going to lie. When I do some panels, I maybe borrow ideas of some of my friends and <laughs> say those. Um, but I do actually articulate the idea myself, and I think it proves that you know you've got the ability to articulate what it is that you're trying to convey. Yeah, absolutely. And with the kids that, that are trying to get into the industry um, and they're wanting to go pen testing or red teaming, um, a lot of them have, you know, played games as kids, you know, Xbox or whatever, you know, Steam or whatever. So I push them to um, YouTube and do their hacks, you know, play with Metasploit, play with some exploit tools and, and videotape it and, and, and post it, uh, get that exposure. Um, and I think that that's, it works really well in the discord that we have, we try to post as much information to help people out, uh, get people involved. I think getting involved with a group or getting involved with uh, a meetup or, or a DEF CON group, um, from a red team point of view is probably the best idea, uh, simply because of the fact that if you're around like-minded people, those ideas seem to transfer easily. 
and knowledge transfer, I think, is, is the hardest part when you're first starting out is absorbing all that knowledge because there's so much and it changes so quickly. Uh, yeah, I, I, I like the idea of publishing and, and getting research out there. Um, that was one of the first things that we did when we started this group was put out a GitHub uh, so that people can publish their, their code and their tools uh, and get that exposure. Um, so state of the industry, let's talk about that for a second. Um, you know, I, I, I've had the fortunate and sometimes unfortunate um, exposure to different parts of the industry. Uh, I've seen the good, the bad, and the ugly. And uh, I think right now, um, with the critical infrastructure being targeted and you know the ransomware attacks picking up, we're doing ourselves a huge disservice by looking at people as employees, as numbers. Um, I think that we've, we tend to lose that, that, that personal aspect to it. And that's why I like, you know, the AU awards. I, I like the, you know, cyber house party, you know, the, the cool stuff, you know, the stuff that, that gives us a little, you know, another breath of fresh air you know, a little cup of coffee or whatever, uh, you know, get that energy up. Um, and we need more of that. I think we need more people interaction. And during the pandemic, it's been very difficult. Uh, we sit on zoom and, and do everything remote. And to me, that's like, you know, it's so it's not personal. You know, I, I like to spend time with, with my people, get to know who they are. As a matter of fact, um, we have uh, a co-host coming on shortly that, that does work for me. Um, and I'm really excited about that because, you know, one of the things that they said was, you know, Hey, look, I'd really like to get involved with podcasting. You know, I want to try it. And I said, well, I have a prime opportunity for you. Um, and just exposure like that. You know, I don't think we give the newcomers enough, I guess, enough space or, you know, enough opportunity. Uh, we pigeonhole them because, you know, they haven't been in the industry very long or they don't know as much as the next person. And I think it's totally wrong. I, I'd like to get people, you know, exposed to different parts of the industry, whether it's, you know, someone on Chris Roberts level or someone who just walked in the door. Um, to me, getting those people together, no matter what the level is, uh, it helps the industry. But I think right now um, we're in a really bad situation as far as you know, looking at security as a whole and companies are gonna have to break down the walls and start communicating with each other and sharing information or else it's gonna be a clusterfuck with the ransomware and the infrastructure attacks. That's my take on it. How about yours, Christoph and then Amy? I would say that um, it's individuals like Chris Roberts, um, Alan Alford, uh, Gary Hayslip, um, those types of individuals that I've reached out to as a, a newbie in the industry, and they were welcoming. They took me under their wing. They shared advice, and being connected to them and being exposed to their network has been instrumental in my career, and that's why I hope to do the same for others. Um, what regards to the, the state of the industry, I, I think being exposed to the business side, you get to see that um, security isn't everything. And being in the security side, you have to be able to communicate the risk effectively and the story tell uh, to, to seniors, to business owners, why this is important. And even if you have to come up with um, something that relates to them on a personal level as an analogy as to the risk, um, do that. Because if you don't translate it to an emotional level that they can feel it, um, they're going to just say, well, 
I, I don't see the risk there or the risk isn't as big as the reward. Um, Colonial Pipeline, for example, I mean, they, they lost a couple hundred million dollars for not being able to sell oil in the meantime, but um, that, that was a risk-based decision for them. Like they, they got back up and whatever, we, we, we paid some millions of dollars in ransom. Uh, that's less than one, I think it was less than half a percent of their gross earnings last year. So that's a drop in the bucket for them. So for them, that was the, the risk-based decision that they chose. Um, so when you're talking to these senior leaders, you, you have to tell them in a way that's impactful to them why that's important. Um, and that's that's the biggest shocker for, for those that are more on the technical side and they are just exposed to like, how can we secure it? But then they don't have that storytelling to the business side. Um, it becomes very shocking. And I, I like to say I play in between them. So I know just enough to be dangerous on the technical side. Um, like I got my AWS security cert, but you don't want me running your AWS infrastructure. Um, but that, that's how I like to say it. Like I, I know how to secure it. I, I know the things to look at, um, but you probably don't want me being the one to do it. But I could talk to a security engineer and talk to them about different ways of securing it. And then they, they might go, oh, well, I didn't think about that. Um, or because they, they don't think outside the box, they're like just focused on their one service. Mm -hmm. um, you have to think with business logic, you have to think with user experience, you, you have to think with many hats when you're in security, not just securing the infrastructure. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's, I think it's spot on. And I, I really appreciate the CISOs and the directors who actually sit down with their people and work side by side. Um, that was one of the stipulations of, of me going to work for another company was the fact that you can't take the keyboard away from me. I, I don't want to be a manager manager. I, I want to be, you know, a team player and, and work side by side. Um, you build trust that way. And, and plus, it's, it's interesting to me. Amy, how about you? What do you think about the industry as a whole right now? I think we're getting better. Um, so I got asked this question the other day, like, what do I think around like where we kind of sit and how to improve things? Mm. Um, and I was saying I've seen quite a lot of organizations take that CISO role from being underneath the CTO and being like alongside the CTO. Because if those two, if like the CISO is reporting to the CTO, then basically the CTO is marking his own homework, which isn't really going to help anyone because he's never then going to go report back to the board and say, fuck, I've done some shit really badly. Because um, <laughs> why would you do that? Um, where the CISO, I think the CISO needs, if, I think if we can start pulling the CISO into the, into the board, board level, then you're getting like a unbiased view, I guess, of what's going on in terms of security and because security kind of pervades the entire organization it's not just an IT problem it doesn't make any sense for him to report into the CTO anyway um so yeah I think I think we may I think we're making positive steps in terms of kind of organizations understanding that um and security becoming more of an organizational issue rather than an IT problem um but I don't think we're quite there yet no, nah, I think we got a ways to go. Ryan, what about you? What do you think about the state of the industry and, and where we're failing together? Um, because I think you have an interesting perspective on that. 
Yeah, well, as a newcomer, someone who's like fresh as to the industry, like I'm seeing all the stuff from the bottom up. You guys are looking from the top down. And um, it's with the entry-level roles that I've been doing, it's been really interesting to see how, uh, I wouldn't say a little respect, but little understanding like the Joe average business has about security, like uh, just convincing people to spend money on on something that doesn't have that immediate return is like uh, the real challenge that I'm facing at the moment. Like I'm really interested to hear about this, the story that uh, Chris was talking about before, the yarn that you spin. Yeah, Chris. Christoph, you want it? Yeah. Chris. Off, sorry, the yarn that I spin. <laughs> yeah, the, the story you, t- tell about the, you, you spoke about the story being able to, uh, yeah, so like a narrative to, I mean, it, it really differs based on what, what you're trying to convey, but you have to convey what's happening with the business, um, as a risk based decision, and um. To, to do that, you have to take into consideration a lot of factors. You have to take in the vulnerability, the likelihood that the vulnerability will get attacked, what the threat actor would be or what they what they could do then, um, the threat landscape that you're in and how you relate to that threat landscape. Because it could be that you're a bigger player or you're a smaller player. Um, so taking that into consideration and then creating a, a story to tell leadership. I mean, if you're a big, a big financial company. Yeah. You're a big target. You're going to, you're going to be attacked. So you have to always have your game up. Um, if you're a smaller person, then you have to think about what can we do with the resources that we have available, um, in order to minimize our threat surface that's out there. And it, it while it's almost easier at a smaller level, because you don't think about it, right? Because you don't think about it or you don't have someone that's there to think about it for you as a small company. Um, it, all, it almost goes um, like unlooked at. So it, it's really just about like taking all those factors into play. And then creating a personal story would mean like, I, I think Casey Ellis, put a tweet out the other day with regards to looking at risk as being punched in the face, right? Um, and like then a, a recruiter from Australia um, made a shirt out of it. So that, that's why I remembered it. Um, but, but it was like the, 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 the threat is being punched in the face. Um, the risk is like, how likely am I to punch you in the face? Um, and then he responded was the acceptable risk is how much do you like being punched in the face? Um, so sh- you just have to take all that into consideration. And for example, like Colonial Pipeline, like I'm sure that at a risk level, they have a buffer as to how much of their budget you're willing to risk at any given time for an oil spill, um, uh, an incident or whatever. Do you not think the Colonial Pipeline issue could have been dealt with if they had a system that didn't allow toxic levels of chemicals to be put into the water and maybe limited it <laughs> at a lower level? But but that wasn't even the issue. Um, it was their billing system that was hacked. Yeah. And that's funny because... 
the the whole billing system is a front office function and they had it tied to the actual operations but from what i understood from from the inside you know data was the fact that it really wasn't connected um that they had to shut down the pipeline because they weren't able to bill people that were moving fluids and gases through that pipeline so it's kind of a greedy move but i mean still Mm -hmm. it it saved their asses really yeah exactly It, it wasn't connected whatsoever um, it's not like the, the clear water um, water system incident where uh, the attacker was actually able to uh, manipulate the levels, mm-hmm. but someone looking was able to change it. Um, I'm luckily that they had a 24 hour delay safety system and any changes to the chemical level before it got to the water. Um, yeah. and, and that's one of the things when you think about like operational technology. Um, most of the times you're there, they're on 24 seven and they have a lifespan of 20 to 30 years. So they truly take safety seriously. The problem is when you go connect that to the internet, uh, just because you don't want a physical body standing in front of it and you wanna be able to manage um, the, what, what was it? The cram system in Switzerland remotely. And then someone can, Back into it and speed it up. Yeah, they had the uh, with that water situation. Um, that that was really interesting too because the uh, the attack came through TeamViewer, and the only way they found out was the guy sitting behind the desk was sitting there watching his mouse go all over the screen, and then they realized, oh shit, we've been hacked. And they were trying to, I think it was line that they were trying to dump into the uh, the water system, um, which could have caused a lot of people to get sick. Uh, but yeah, it's just, and it's those careless bullshit things where people don't patch or they, they put something like team viewer that hasn't been patched onto a network. Um, one of the companies in oil and gas, and I tell a story all the time, uh, I walked into this company as a director and realized that they had 500 eternal blue vulnerabilities on a network. And to them, that was acceptable risk because it was inside. And then I go into their knock and I find out that they're running VNC server with no credentials on the client's networks. And these, these are, these are oil platforms, like major platforms that could like catch fire or, you know, kill people. Um, it's just things like that. And it's, I think that the magic word for all of it is acceptable risk. And there's a lot of companies out there that, that really don't know how to gauge acceptable risk um, because they're more worried about return on investment. Uh, and I think that's where a lot of companies get screwed. Um, I think I think a lot of security, like the CISOs or whatever, get like blinded by blinky box technology as well and forget about the foundational stuff. Like I was on a panel about AI earlier this week and I was like, well, surely protecting it. That was fun. Um, I was like, yeah, surely protecting your If you're protecting AI, though, it's exactly the same thing because your AI solution is still just a big database on a network on a very, I appreciate that's a very oversimplified version of it, but it is. So you just need to patch it, make sure you've got access controls in place, have you used MFA, et cetera. Like the, the fundamentals of security haven't changed for the last 20 years, and I can't see how they're going to change that much in the next 20 years. And the technology hasn't changed that much either. When you look at security products, it's the same shit, just with a different wrapper on it, which takes me to our next topic. And I know you guys are going to like this because we talk about it all the time, AI, or should I say AI? Um, so yeah, the, the AI, the, the whole idea, I think is horseshit. Um, Bayes algorithm only goes so far. 
uh, to predict future behavior and off of past experiences. Um, and the way, okay, so people who are listening who don't understand how AI works, AI takes a machine, looks at that machine in a group of machines and looks at the behavior, then takes that group of machines and compares it to another group of machines and looks at that behavior. And as a whole and holistically, that's where you get your AI. Problem is, is people are taking this AI technology and dropping into shithole networks that are already compromised. So platforms like Darktrace or, or, or other AI platforms, um, you toss them in and they're like, oh shit, PowerShell all over the place. Hey, that's, that's legit because it was here when I got here and all the machines are doing it. So it, you know, it's good. Um, and I think we're so far off from having like true AI, maybe machine learning, we might be close to true machine learning, uh, but AI, I don't think that we're even near where we need to be. What are y'all's take on that? Christoph? Amy? <laughs> you ask me. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't think, I don't, well, I don't think, no, I don't think we've got AI just yet. I think it's probably coming though, having read Rick Ferguson's very good 2030 white paper for my last panel. <laughs> Um, I do think I do think we will be there with with AI. Um, yeah, but it's nowhere near now. I, mean, I, th I don't think I was talking about on this panel. I don't think AI is going to be like a massive attack vector because I mean, if you've got AI in your organization, people might try to attack your AI service. So um, uh, on that panel, I talked about people like poisoning your data lake. So if you've got a load of data that the machines learning off then if you poison that, like you said, if you've got a UEBA solution and you stick it on a network that's already got a load of shit in it, what's it gonna learn? It's gonna learn that this shit's normal, right? Um, so yeah, if you, po like, if you the poison in the, poison in a data lake or even the threat of poison in the data lake, like if you're producing food in a factory and someone says, well, we've poisoned your data lake to put like too much salt in everything. What are you gonna do? Fucking <laughs> carry on letting it produce it or you gotta go you check it out on you. So you're gonna have to put a halt to something. Um, but yeah, I don't think in terms like AI, I guess, well, it won't, I don't think it's going to be AI that does the attacking. I think it'll be more like um, you might use it for like scalability. So being able to scrape a lot of information off someone's Facebook page and then send them a more personalized spear phishing email, I guess. Um, but I don't think, I mean, ransomware gives attackers so much fucking return on investment. It's unreal. So what's the point of AI? Well, the, the only point that I see with AI is malware, right? So if you build AI into malware or ransomware um, and give it the capability to look at the environment and move to different routes through the environment based on AI and based on machine behavior, um, it could be a little lethal. But again, you know, I think the attackers will get AI correct before we get AI correct. What do you think, Christoph? You don't need AI for that. You can use machine learning for that. Like, I think most people's definition of AI um, is it for it to think for itself. Mm. And that's different than a very complex if-then statement. Because if you create, you could create that with machine learning. You can have it look at the different potential vectors. Mm. Um, you could have it do assessments. You can have it based on a certain probability choose or not choose to do a certain decision um, that could already be done with machine learning and I mean 
nothing against the people against at Dark Trace. I don't think they have an AI. I think they have a, a very complex machine learning system that um, may or may not work, but that's up to them. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think when it comes to um, the, the future, like if you have a good AI, it, it is going to be immune to things like poisoning the data lakes because it's going to take that threat into consideration. It's going to make multiple very decisions and go look at all the different outputs. It might be 10, 20 different outputs. And then based on those 20 different outputs, then choose to make a decision based on that. So even if it had a version of a poison database, um, it could choose to omit that from any decision making. Um, so yeah, so I, I think we're a far, far away away from there right now. Um, I think right now we just have very sophisticated machine learning. I think our uh, I think our attack drones and uh, the UAVs that have a little bit of machine learning and, and AI technology in it um, are far beyond what we have in cybersecurity. Uh, and the reason being is because the uh, military industrial complex has that money to dump into that type of AI, that type, that type of uh, attack tool. Um, so some of the systems in the military and the government, um, some of the groundbreaking, uh, groundbreaking stuff is really interesting. Uh, some of the war games that, that we were involved with in Suffolk, uh, in Virginia, was really interesting, um, the way that they play out scenarios. So the inputs were from the officers, right? And they were given a scenario and the officers would put in the inputs and the AI would run, true AI would run and look at those inputs and predict the outcome of the skirmish or, or the conflict. Uh, and needless to say that a couple of the uh, scenarios that I watched um, live was kind of scary because the inputs from the officers ended up in a nuclear war. So, <laughs> you know, not something, that, not something I want AI to decide for me. Um, but yeah, I, th I definitely a way off um, from, from AI. So and another- this, The military points are interesting. Um, I was talking to um, someone at Microsoft the other week and they were saying that they'd done a load of tests with AI where they'd convinced, that it, where they convinced the machine that like a plane was a building so it couldn't identify a military base. And that kind of thing. So I think that's quite interesting. And I watched a program on BBC Four. Only I don't normally watch BBC Four. I'm not that embarrassing, I promise. Um, <laughs> someone just told me there was a program about AI on it, um, and that was like they were they were saying like if you just manipulate a couple of pixels in like in like a picture of a dog, the AI can't identify the dog. And it was show, it showed you like what the pixels look like, and it was, it was actually quite an interesting program. So you know, go on iPlayer and go go watch it if you're interested. So, so they also did that with Tesla's um, changing the the speeds of the road signs um, mm -hmm. just by a quick a quick line across the road sign that the, the Tesla couldn't recognize what the, the speed was anymore, um, as well as manipulating the environment to where it couldn't function properly. Yeah, and that's that's really interesting too because when you look at even like the commercial drones that are out there that have the capability to identify objects and maneuver around objects. I recently uh, had a drone and I launched it and it hit some magnetic interference, which was the very first time I've ever seen that. And we live on top of a mountain on 27 acres where there is really no, no magnetic anything. And uh, so I hit the go home button for the drone to do its, you know, automatic GPS location. And, and it ended up taking a dive straight into the ground and destroyed itself. And I thought, if this is a feature of AI, fuck this, I don't want it. <laughs> That's an expensive crash.
So with, uh, with AI, you know, we covered that. Um, what would you, what would you give advice? How would you give advice to somebody getting into cybersecurity, um, from different aspects? Let's, let's go red team, blue team. Um, what would your advice be to somebody coming in fresh that doesn't know anything about either one of them? I would say similar to a, a challenge that I put out on my social media is um, pick, pick a job description, whether that's a red team or a blue team job description. Um, look at six or seven different roles from different companies and in different industries. Uh, see what you're looking for in the job description. Uh, do a self-assessment against yourself. See how you stack up, where the gaps are, where you need to make some improvements. Um, certs, they might be asking for things like that. Um, reach out to individuals in those roles, right? Um, ask to talk about a day in the life of that role. And by the time you get done with doing that, you can see if that's a role that you really want to do by having that separate conversation with those different people about a day in the life of seeing where your gaps are and if it's really worth it because in, at the end of the day if the role requires say a lot of audit work and you hate checking numbers or um, like looking if every i was dotted and every t was crossed um, that's going to go against your passions and that's going to burn you out if you have to do that day in day out and you can find that out ahead of time um, just by interviewing individuals that are in the role. And if they're telling you what they have to do and you talk to five or six different people, every role is likely going to require some aspect of that. Um, sure, you could find this one random company where it doesn't, but um, if you grow in your career, you'll end up back in that same spot. So that might not be the, the right role for you. So kind of do that investigation ahead of time before you go out and you start applying for a role that you don't know anything about. How about you, Amy? Yeah, that's like the opposite of my advice. Yeah, that's like the opposite of my advice. My, my advice is go find a job in cyber, like literally any job, anyone, because you, you can literally pivot between roles so easily. I know so many people have pivoted from being in a SOC analyst to a pen tester because you've got the same, you've got a very similar skill set across every role. So if you, well, I mean, the whole skills gap thing is a load of bollocks because you know what? There's about 50 people applying for every one entry level role, right? So you've got to make yourself stand out. There's no, if there was a skills gap, you everyone who applied for a job would just get the job, but they don't do that because it isn't a skills gap because we've all, because there's like 50 people applying for every one fucking job. So if you can get a job in cyber, go get one and then work out what you want to do when you get there. But get into the industry first, go network with some people, get yourself known, do some shit that's cool, and then you can move into whatever job you want. But you probably won't know what job you want when you first start anyway, because or, no one ever does. Or falsify your CV. Who knows? Yeah. I, I know. um, uh, yeah, you, you got into it fairly easy compared to some of the, the folks that I talked to. I mean, some of them, like, they've been job hunting for eight, nine months, um, they're not, they're not they putting the right thing on the CV. Then they're not putting the right. They're not. They're not proving to the industry that why they're worth. But why why they're worth getting a job? What are they doing that's different to everyone? You've got to stand out. There's that many people. This is what I mean. There's no skills gap. There's that many people applying for every role. You have to make yourself stand out. So post 
post about stuff that you've been doing on Try Hack Me, explain what you did or make a video about it or make a website about it or blog about it or whatever. Go talk to some people, join in with events, like comment, like when you're, if you're watching YouTube videos, get involved in the chat and stuff. Like how else are you going to get yourself known? That's the, the one thing that I teach every single person that I'm mentoring is go and fucking network, right? That's the yep. only way that you're going to get a job. Because you need to know some people. So skills gap, let's talk about skills gap for a second. And I'll, this is my theory on skills gap. And I may be right, I may be wrong, who knows, but I, th- I think I'm close. The problem with the skills gap, there is none, right? So we have entry-level positions and we have mid-level positions. What happens is when the mid-level moves up, they don't bring the entry-level people up to that mid-level. They fuck them and leave them right where they're at. And because they, they don't want to have to go searching for an entry level. So the, there's tons of jobs. Problem is, is the companies are not hiring the way that they're supposed to hire. They're not promoting from within. Um, and that's a huge, huge issue. And that's one of the things that I look at when, you know, when I have teams is who on my team is ready to move up? Um, who, who can handle the second level? Who can handle the third level? That way I can go out and give somebody else that needs a chance another chance um you know to get them in the door it would be so much it would be so much cheaper if you hired from within your own if you promoted people within your business to the next level as well like people go out and and hire someone else from for a a mid-level role and i think you're spending like 8 10 15k on fucking commission to a recruiter that you don't need to spend it on when you've literally got someone who's in your office sat right there but then if the people in your office sat right there again and not proving to themselves proving to you why they should be worth why they're worth moving up in the world then yeah i get why people don't do it and you're you're right mike um most of the times they look at the individual leaving the role and they were the job description based on that individual rather than where they were two, two to three years ago when they got hired. Uh, that, that's one problem. The other problem you have is those that are coming into the industry thinking that they could go and get to a certain level because they completed a course or because they did this, because they did that. And then you're applying for roles that are two, three levels above them mm-hmm. um, because they're like, oh, well, I, I, I have the skills to do it. And they haven't really self-assessed where they are. Um, or for, for individuals that are transitioning from another role into the industry is that you're aiming two to three levels too low. A hiring manager looks at their, their resume, their CV, and going, uh, you're way too overqualified for this role. If I put you in here, you're going to be bored or you're going to catch up really quickly and you'll be gone in 12 months um so i'd rather not hire you so that that's most of the time where i tell individuals if you're applying for a role you meet 60 70 percent max of the role and apply for it because if you meet 90 to 100 percent of the role you're a you're going to be bored Mm -hmm. um and then b the hiring manager is going to have that same feeling that you're going to max out really quickly and they don't want to take that risk in you yeah, exactly. Ryan, Ryan, what was your uh, what was your entry into cybersecurity like? Uh, the interview process and and you know the skills and and the things that they were requiring. What was it like? I didn't have one, mate. No. Um, in Australia, it was tough. Um, basically, I just I was doing the uh, was it certificate four in cybersecurity. Um, it's a, it's a good course, but 
there's 17,000 people coming out every six months with the same, the same qualification. So I just started learning everything I could, doing every course that I could find, talking to all the strange weirdos who do podcasts, you know, getting involved with a couple, um, you know, and just getting myself out there, doing exactly what Amy said, posting on LinkedIn like a maniac, um, helping people I know who are more experienced get jobs if I heard of something. And then through someone, I recommended someone to a company in the US and apparently that worked out well. And three months later, they came back and offered me a remote position, which is where I'm at now. So awesome. Awesome. Well, no interview required. We're at the end of our hour. And I know Christoph has some, some stuff to do with the family. It's a holiday weekend. Um, so I'm going to, uh, let him, you know, you have any questions for us? If not, no, it's, no? It, it's been, it's been a great chat. Um, if, if it were in a week, um, I'd stay a little bit longer, but, um, my, my family's already upset that I'm doing this. So, uh, I devoted, I really appreciate the time. I really appreciate the audience. I've been following this group for a long time. Um, and I'm truly honored and, uh, Amy's an amazing co-host. Uh, she's fabulous. Uh, so I'll, I'll give her shout outs and uh, ho hopefully she'll continue to co-host for you as well. <laughs> Thanks, Christoph. We appreciate it. And you're welcome anytime. I'd love to have you back on the show sometime soon. Absolutely. Thanks, man. Okay. Thanks, everyone. But Thank you, Amy. Yes, Amy is fantastic. So a couple announcements before we shut everything down. Um, we have a new Instagram, uh, Haunted Hacker Instagram. We now have the SoundCloud, we have all kinds of stuff that's coming out. We're moving the podcast to a paid subscription for the live event. Um, the videos are still going to be free and it's still going to be on TechStrong TV. Uh, but due to certain circumstances in the internet and the underworld, we're going to have to limit uh, exposure to the live event. Um, so no big deal. I like the intimate, I like the intimacy better than, uh, than a ton of people who we don't know. And, and, you know, it, tends to be a little bit more taxing uh, on me as a host and, and everybody else that looks out for the security of the podcast. So with that, um, I will see you guys next weekend. Enjoy the fourth. Uh, look for more uh, attacks tomorrow. Um, they're coming and uh, <laughs> stay safe. I'll see you guys later. See you guys.